morning, church. It's fantastic to have you here this morning, this last day of 2000, or last Sunday, excuse me, of 2018. That's still got tomorrow, right? Turning your Bibles to Psalm 134 this morning. 134. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the time that we have um, to freely turn to it and to study it, to be taught and molded by it. Lord, as we observe the heart of the worshiper this morning, we just pray that you would instill truths in us that maybe we've never seen before. Thank you and we praise you for your son, Jesus, who is the reason why we worship you. Pray this in his precious name. Psalm 134. This is a psalm, song of ascent. Verse 1. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Again, Holy Spirit, we invite you into our hearts to shape and mold our understanding of you. In Jesus' name. Like Wes said earlier, today is the fifth Sunday of December, and when we have five Sundays in a month, Take a break in our series, whatever we're doing. It just so happens that we're in between series right now. Uh, and we turn to the Psalms to particularly to observe the worshiper of God. And the Psalms are very complex. There's hundreds of different ways we can approach them and, and hundreds of different ways we should approach them. Uh, we can look at the book of Psalms as the, as the prayer book of the Bible. We can look at the book of Psalms as the hymn book of the Bible. We can look at the book of Psalms as the emotional book of the Bible. There's just an endless, endless ways that we can approach the, uh, approach the Psalms. And each individual Psalm has its own flavor and its own purpose. And it's, it's very exciting, in my opinion. Psalm 134 is the last of what are called the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, and what the Psalms of Ascent are, what their purpose was, at least in ancient Israel, was these songs, uh, these psalms, excuse me, were were sung and recited uh, as as you or we as as individual Israelites were traveling to Jerusalem for either a sacrifice or a festival or really any any corporate gathering. So as you were as you were in your own hometown or whatever, no, not everybody in in uh, Israel lived in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, is a city in Israel, right? It's the capital of Israel. And so maybe you, li- maybe you were a Danite and you lived, you know, 30 to 40 miles away in, in kind of the northern part of Israel or whatever. And you would travel. You were supposed to travel there multiple times a year for the festivals. You know, Passover was meant to be celebrated near at first the tabernacle and then the temple. And so you were to travel together. Everybody was supposed to come together. And 
And when the temple is built, and the temple's built in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem sits on this hill, uh, it's, it's more than a hill. It's not quite a mountain, but it's also not quite a hill. You would, you would journey to Jerusalem, and, and as you started to, to go up that, that incline, you were going to prepare your heart so that in a lot of ways you didn't waste any time once you got to the temple. Especially when you didn't live near the temple, you didn't regularly go to the temple. Most, most Israelites probably only visited Jerusalem once a year at most, if they did that. It's, it's expensive to travel in the ancient world. It's difficult to travel, travel in the ancient world. You have, to, you have to take a break from tending your flocks or your, your crops or whatever it is that you do for a living. It costs money. All sorts of stuff hinders you from going to the temple. And so, so going to the temple was extremely important, and they didn't want to waste any time. And so on their journey, they would prepare their hearts to go, to go into the temple so that when they got there, they were focused. I want to do three things today. I want to talk about three things today, all of them sort of briefly. The first is I want us, I want us to think about what, if, what, what the Israelites were doing with these Psalms of Ascent and maybe try to apply kind of the concept of the Psalms of Ascent to us today. Then I want us to look at more particularly Psalm 134 and what it, what it meant then, what its purpose was then, and then kind of how that applies to us today, cluing you into our path here. The first thing, when we talk about the Psalms of Ascent and we talk about, talk about this idea of preparing our hearts for something, this is something that I think we always can grow in, to be prepared uh, particularly be prepared for Sunday, Sunday morning service or, or even Wednesday night Bible study. We, we as, as humans, we don't, we don't typically operate in on and off settings, right? We don't, we don't immediately flip a switch and shift from one thing to the next thing. This is why most people benefit from, from living 20 to 30 minutes away from their job. Because you don't just, you don't just walk out of your, your, your place of work and walk into your home and immediately have turned everything off. Right? The stresses of the day, especially if you work in a in a place where you're using your mind a lot, maybe maybe this isn't isn't as applied to to people who are in manual labor jobs, but really everybody who's who works in a manual labor job is still using their brain, right? You're still thinking about you're still thinking about the, the house that you have to frame or the crops that you need to bring in. Even though you're gonna do that physically, it's still happening in your mind. And we don't immediately shift from work brain to home brain. And many of us actually have a really hard time shifting to home brain, and this is why a lot of people have difficulties in their marriages and with their kids, because they're not, they're not thinking about their kids. They're thinking about their job. They're off somewhere else, right? And so you benefit from having that time to kind of, to kind of wind down, to, to turn off work brain and turn on home brain, so that once you get with your family, you're focused on your family. We do this with all sorts of things, not just with work. To give you kind of a, a sillier example, we do this with, with tailgating, right? Everybody's seen tailgaters. Maybe some of you are tailgaters. I'm not a tailgater myself. I don't, I'm not really a sports guy. I like watching sports, but I'm not really a sports guy. I can't imagine spending more time before the game than during the game. But the purpose of tailgating, outside of maybe barbecue food and, and, and having fun with friends, is to kind of prepare you to enjoy the game more, right? 
So you go ahead of the game and you and you get really all psyched up so that when the game starts, you don't waste any time getting ready for the game that you're going to watch. And the people of Israel, they recognize that this is a, this is this is not just something that they that they maybe could do. This is something that they they had to do because going to the temple was way too important. Worshiping God is way too important to start thinking about it when they walked in the door. Now, it's really easy to get on a high horse when it's your job to be here. Okay? I recognize this. And I, and I recognize that I'm, I'm, I've been late in the past. I've been ill-prepared, Ill or maybe ill-prepared is not the right word, but I've been in, in the wrong mental state in the past. But, it, but church isn't just about a social gathering. It's about something so much more important. It's about the glorification of God. And we have, really, let, think about this, just, just bear with me for a minute. We can do it all week long, but we dedicate an hour and a half a week to do it as a corporate body. Some of you come Wednesday night and, and study the Bible. We don't sing songs of praise and worship to on Wednesday night, so so maybe if we even if we add that extra time, say another hour and a half, hour hour and a half, so three hours out of what is it, 162 hours a week? I think we would benefit from observing these this Israelite practice of preparing our hearts as we are on our way to church. I listen to audio books pretty much exclusively whenever I'm driving. My radio doesn't really work very good. And while I like to sing in my car, I, I, I just kind of the person that I am. I like listening to books. Sunday mornings, I don't. I turn on praise and worship music. And, and while it's only eight minutes to get to my house from from here, get from my house to here, whatever, it's still eight minutes that are that are turning my attention towards the Lord. I also get here fairly early. I get here somewhere between five thirty and six. I, I practice my sermon right when I get here. And then there's usually about an hour to an hour and a half in between in between me finishing practicing my sermon and other people actually starting to get here. Sometimes Wes gets here a little bit early and throws the whole schedule off. But, but I use that time not, not to just, just be here, but to prepare my heart. Because the worship of God is far too important to not be prepared. I don't want to waste a minute of this time, of whenever Wes starts singing or whenever the band starts playing, I don't want to waste a single second shifting my attention, turning, you know, turning the switch on and waiting for you know, the hard drives to boot up. And I, and I, I, I again, I don't, want to, I don't want to sound mean and I'm not being judgmental in any way, but, but the question is, is, is this how we are? Do you prepare your heart? Do you think about church before you walk in the door? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture a guess because I, I recognize that we're probably pretty typical. You don't. Once you enter in the building, you're excited. Oh, yeah, it's good to be here. But you prepare your heart to worship God on your way to church or before you leave for church. You're getting dressed in the morning. A lot of people have, you know, Stereos and, and 
and you know stereo systems in their homes where you could be playing you could be playing worship music as you get ready to turn to incline your heart towards the Lord to best worship and serve him once you get here I'm not going to spend any more time on that cuz I'm not As we look at Psalm 134 this this psalm is is interesting Like I said it's a psalm of ascent but it's, it's different than the other Psalms of Ascent because it seems like, and, and we're clued into this because it's the last of the 15 Psalms of Ascent. It seems like this, this Psalm is supposed to be sung at the end. So you come to the, you come to, to the temple to, to make a sacrifice. You come to the temple to participate in Passover. And Passover is a week-long festival. And it seems like this psalm is supposed to be sung at the, at the close of the night to prepare the hearts of the leaders and to prepare the hearts of the congregants for worship the next day or for worship into the future. So there's kind of two audiences here. The first we see in the first two verses, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. And then it, it specifies more particularly in the second stanza here, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. And then it gives a, a further definition of how do we do this? How do we bless the Lord? Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. So audience one is myself and Wes. Or recipients one is myself and Wes, perhaps is a better way to put it. Now, I'm, I'm going to say this and I'm going to, let me try to explain why I'm going to say, how, why I say this. You, the congregation, are the voice. And you speak to the leaders of worship within the congregation that is serving and worshiping God. So the servants that are being talked about here in verse 1, the servants are the Levites. Now, this is, this is still based on context. We're still making an assumption here, but, but I think it's a fairly good one. It says, All you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord being the temple, and really the only people who are left in the temple at night are the Levites. Now, the Levites are interesting in Israel. Israel, or Jacob, who is later renamed Israel by God, becomes the patriarch of the people of Israel. He has 12 sons who become 12 tribes of Israel. But what's interesting is that Joseph, who's sent off into Egypt, he actually gets split into two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh kind of gets interesting, half-tribe of Manasseh, and all this kind of stuff, weird stuff. But what happens is now there's 13 children who, who are going to be tribes, but one of them is taken out and set aside for a different task. So when you talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, what you're actually talking about is 11 sons and two grandsons. Let me say that a different way because that was incorrect. 10 sons and two grandsons. Joseph is kind of brought in as two grandsons, and Levi is removed. 
And the Levites, the descendants of Levi, are tasked with leading the people of Israel in the worship and service of the Lord. They're given multiple different jobs. Some of them are spread out throughout the land. So you got all these different tribes, these, these 12 tribes spread out in all of the land of, of Canaan and the land of Israel where, where the Israelites settle. Some Levites are to go to the tribe of Dan and dwell in cities in the cities of, of the Danites and the Ephraimites and the, and the Gadites and all, all through the land. These Levites would be probably most associated with pastoral counselors of today. People who are going to be who are going to be regularly, their, their regular task is to interact with the people and to help guide them and direct them through the emotional and physical and, and all, the, all, all that life has to offer, the, the day-to-day life movement. Now, before the Babylonian exile, there's no preachers. It's the, the, the people of Israel are people of the temple. That's where you worship God. Synagogues were not a thing yet. Church was not a thing yet. Regular Sunday, or for them, Saturday services hadn't, hadn't begun yet. But after the Babylonian that, exile, that starts to happen. And it's not just the Levites who lead that. It's also some other rabbis and things like that. But then there's the Levites that we're talking about today. The Levites who are, who are dedicated to the temple. You have the janitor-type Levites who are to keep the temple in good and working order. They're cleaning. They're 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 keeping up, things break, they fix them, things like that. Then there are the, the, uh, uh, the sacrificers, the priests. They're the ones who are taking the sacrifice that you bring in. They're putting it on the altar. They're, they're you know, slitting its throat. Sorry to be visual, but they're the ones doing the, the physical work of the sacrifices. Then you have the Levites who are the worshipers who are set aside to be the music makers. In fact, this is actually one of the largest groups in the Levitical uh, world. These Levites are everywhere. The Levites were supposed to lead the people in song. Wes. And the Levites, they didn't have other jobs. Their task was to serve and worship God and to lead the people of Israel to serve and worship God. And they were supported by the rest of the nation. This is what the tithe is. The tithe was given to the, to the temple to be dispersed amongst the Levites so that the Levites wouldn't have to work. Now, the reality is, is that some of them still worked. Some of them still had other jobs and didn't do things particularly for this, but that's a different story altogether. But to probably, as much as we can, simplify things or compare it as most, as, as closely as we can to today, it would be vocational ministry. That's who the Levites were. They were vocational ministers. They, their jobs were to lead the people in the worship of God, both in the proclamation of the good news of God and the word of God, which happens after the Babylonian exile in synagogues and in the temple still. Right? Jesus goes into the temple, he opens up a scroll and he preaches from it, very similar to what I do today. And Jesus obviously has an inside track. but And also to make song, what Wes does. 
not just not just to sing the songs, but to to help guide and direct you to learn and understand what it means to sing songs, to to help advance you in your understanding of of of, of singing and different types and genres of music, and to write new songs, which is all things that West does, and and the church supports him mostly because we believe that it's a biblical principle. So those are the Levites. So, so when we're, we're looking at this, we've got to remember there's, there's two worlds here. We've we got to make sure we keep the context of the Levites, but also try to bring it into today. So you as a congregation, you say to Wes and I, the Israelites would say to the Levites, come, bless the Lord. It said twice, bless the Lord to start. Come, bless the Lord to start. And, by the way, bless the Lord to end. I've said in the past, and I, and I, still, I still agree with it, and in the context of when I said it in the past, I don't think I said it wrongly. But my, I've said in the past my primary task, and when I said that before, I meant the primary thing that I do for others is to preach consider myself to be a preacher before I am anything else. I, I do teach. Wednesday nights is more teaching. I do counseling. I, I, all of those things are important, but my primary task, what God has called me to, interacting with other people is to preach. But my primary task is not to preach. What, what I should be as a minister of the Lord is first and foremost one who glorifies God. Let me use a, a negative example to try to show you what I mean. About a month ago, we were talking in our Wednesday evening Bible study about how there are some churches now in America who are hiring pastors who are not believers. Now, I hope that I'm not the only person when I hear that go, what? But here's the logic. Not every preacher... Let me say this the right way. Not every preacher is best equipped to fully understand all of the massive intricacies, and by the way, myself included, the massive intricacies of the literary magnificence of this book. Right? My, my training, my degree, is not in literature. But what I do every single day of my life is to study literature. And so some people who study literature all their lives, who go to school to understand the different genres and different all this kind of stuff, are actually better equipped than a lot of a lot of believing pastors to teach you everything that there is to know about the Bible. And so churches go, oh, let me let me hire a let me hire somebody who will best understand this book. I hope that makes sense. That's their logic. Now I disagree with it. But that's their logic. I disagree with that because passages like this. The primary task of the of the ministers of the gospel, the ministers of of God's good news. Is not to share it with others, but to glorify and bless God. In fact, I believe that so strongly that if, if that is not my primary task, I can't give you anything. 
a good leader has been to where they're going. Right? You get into a, a caravan, driving a caravan down to Florida. You put the person who's been there in the front. Not the person who is, you know, directionally challenged and has never been, you know, outside of Wayne County. Don't put that person in the front. Yeah, they might have GPS, but a good leader knows where they're going. And in the church, where are we going? What's what's your task? Why are you here? What are we doing? Let me let me answer. Let me simply answer that. Our job is to glorify God always first. To bless the Lord. And what we mean by bless the Lord when we when we say this is we we give him his just deserves. God, the creator, the sustainer of the universe deserves all of our honor, all of our glory, all of everything that we can give to the Lord, we should because he rightly owns it. In fact, he's the only one who rightly owns it. And so our primary task is always to serve and worship him in glory and honor. Now, to answer the question, what about feeding the poor, taking care of the orphans and the widows, all these things that we talked about over the past month during Advent. Yes, those are also things that we should do. But if we are not first and primarily glorifying God with our hearts, with our voices, and with our actions, and by the way, our actions are those things that I just said, then we are not actually doing anything. And so you as a congregation, you turn to Wes and I, and you say, come, Bless the Lord, glorify God as you as we leave for the night or as we're about to enter into the temple to serve and worship God. You leader of us in this task should first and primarily bless the Lord. Now, I think the first time this is said, I think it's a it's I think it's a voice thing. Say it. Understand it, know it, use your communication skills to do so. In the second one, in verse 2, it says, lift up your hands to the holy place. And in, in Peter, Peter says, lift up your holy hands and, and worship God, essentially. Okay. That's a physical posture that's supposed to represent something about our, our, our spiritual lives. Right? We lift up our hands in praise and worship, not because we truly think that we are holy in ourselves, but this is a, a posture. Look at the, Look! Look at what what my soul is doing. This is this is what it looks like. If I were to personify my soul, this is what what it looks like. The Lord is all I need, right? Declan, just a minute ago, not a minute ago, right when he first got here, come running to me like this, arms outstretched to 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 jump into his father's arms. This is our posture. That's not what this is about. I think rather what what the psalmist is saying here, which is most likely David, but the psalmist is saying here, let's get to work. The things that you do, right? In the first, bless the Lord. It's with your, vo- with your voice, with your mouth, what you're saying, how you're saying it. Bless the Lord. Proclaim His glories. And then he says, but also, do it. Okay, this is your 
call to myself, your call to Wes. And let me give you some permissions here. If you ever, in any situation, see this not being mine or Wes's or any other, anybody else in leadership in this church, this is not our primary task. You call us out. Not quietly, not secretively, call us out. Because this is, this, this is what defines everything else that we should be doing. Then there's a response. There's a response. In verse 3. It says, May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. This is kind of twofold. You're the recipients, but you're not who is, who is being told. Make sense? You are to receive a blessing from the Lord, but it is I as a minister of the gospel, it is I as a Levite of today, Wes is a Levite of today, who is calling God to do this. Doesn't that seem a little presumptuous? To tell God what to do? God of heaven, creator of everything, everyone and everything, all-powerful, mighty, do this thing. That sounds silly. Can you imagine saying that to God? But that's what's being said here. This is what the worshiper of God is doing. He's calling on God to fulfill a promise of God. From start to finish in Scripture, this is what God is telling us. I want to be near you. Do we recognize this? The only reason why there is separation between us and God, it, none of the separation between us and God is God's fault or God's choice or God's decision. It's all of us. We are the ones who have sinned and rebelled against Him. We are the ones who have turned our backs against Him. And in fact, from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation is God's attempt to show us that in fact, He wants to be near us. This is what it means for God to bless us. It doesn't mean monetary. It doesn't mean the things that we have. It means His presence. Which, by the way, far outweighs anything that we could have. So how does this happen? I'll be honest, it doesn't happen as well as it should, but I think what it is, is through the week as I prepare for Sunday, as I prepare my sermons, as I prepare what I'm going to say, the passages that I'm studying, my heart is inclined toward you. I don't, I don't get up here to preach just to make sounds or to hear myself talk. I rather don't like to listen to myself talk. Might be shocking. But the reason why I get up here is because I want you, through the words that are coming out of my mouth, which are hopefully bathed in the Holy Spirit, to affect you toward God. Charles Spurgeon, one of my 
pastor heroes. He talks in his letters to his lectures to his students about about the the prayer life of the pastor. He talks about laboring over the sermons for those people in his congregation who do not know the Lord. That has been a conviction of mine for a few months now. It's, it's been something that has always been a pattern of mine, but never quite to that extent. I pray for many of you by name whenever I prepare my sermons. Now, not every week do I pray for every name in this room, but I think this is what the psalmist is saying. I think this is what the heart of the worshiper is. The desire for God to bless those who hear the good news with his presence. And so what do we do with this? How do we... How do we respond like the psalmist does? I think it's twofold. Number one, we recognize the monstrous importance of what we're doing. What we do here on a Sunday morning is not just a task that we check off a list. We are approaching the throne of the almighty God of the universe. And we want every second of it to count. Not to sound arrogant, but that starts with leadership. It starts with me. Caring enough about the Lord to bless him in all that I endeavor to do, So that whenever I stand up here, it's not just a resounding cymbal. Not just a gong playing in the background that doesn't have any effect. But it's the movement of the Spirit. And so the challenge to you because of that truth is to call me to it. To hold me to that truth. By the way, Wes. And in response to that, in follow up to that, I pray a blessing upon you all. We have a very simple and complex life to live. It's simple in that it really boils down to that one truth we are here to glorify God. We are here to glorify God in all that we do. And it's complex, and then that manifests itself in infinite ways. So I'm not going to stand up here and tell you this is how this is the thing, these are the things you need to do to glorify God. But rather, I'm going to ask you to challenge yourselves. Challenge yourselves to think about what does it mean for me? to cherish my time with the Lord on a Sunday morning? What does it mean for me to cherish my time with the Lord on a Tuesday at 3 p.m. whenever your job is starting to get stressful? What does it mean for me to bless God in all that I endeavor to do as His servant? 
And how can I pass that blessing on to those who are around? The answer will only ever come from the Spirit of God. It does, in fact, dwell in your hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord in heaven, I ask that you would fill our hearts today with your spirit. I ask that you would grant us power and strength like we've never seen before for no other reason than to glorify you. Lord, you are worthy of everything that we can give and infinitely more. And so we ask that you would help us to give all that we can. That we would give you honor. That we would give you praise. We would give you worship. And we would glorify your name, not just with the words that come out of our mouths, but with our actions as well. And that we would then bless each other. We would bless those who are around us. Those who we both know and don't know. Lord, bless your people from Zion. You who made heaven and earth. It's in your son Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.